Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a sermon from Greg Bonson entitled Preparing for Christmas. Check out the full Greg Bonson Christmas collection now available on Canon Plus. We're continuing this morning in our series on the Gospel of Luke, and I suppose the most tempting thing for a preacher to do at just about this point is to say, well, now there's a footnote in the text of the Bible about the genealogy of Jesus, and if we're going to do any preaching that's going to be of any spiritual substance or sustenance for the people of God, we'll just conveniently uh, overlook this passage of Scripture and go on now to chapter 4 and continue. But as you can see from our scripture reading, I've decided that that is not the proper thing for us to do. And so we are going to take Luke, the third chapter, verses 23 to 38, as our text this morning, and give consideration to it. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, the third chapter, that all scripture is inspired of God, and as such is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfectly furnished unto all good works. Paul's suggestion is that if we neglect any portion of Scripture in knowing God and knowing about God, to that degree that we neglect Scripture, we are not perfectly equipped for every good work. There is something lacking in our Christian education, our Christian edification, our Christian preparation, for the life that we need to lead in the world, and for what God requires of us as his people. All scripture is inspired of God, and that is to say that this long genealogy, this long table of descent that we just read, was inspired of God. God not only breathed out the words of the good news that uh, Jesus Christ came to give his life for sinners, God not only breathed out the edifying doctrines about creation and providence. God not only breathed out the threatening or comforting doctrine of the final judgment, God not only breathed out the interesting portions of biblical history, the Gospels or Old Testament histories of the kings or what have you, God not only breathed out the songs of praise in the Bible and the words of ethical exhortation, but God himself authored the genealogy that we just read. Now, that in itself should force us, and certainly force your preacher, to stop and think whether we have any right to jump over it as we're preaching through the Gospel of Luke. I mean, there's some reason why God thought it important to include this in the inspired and infallible Word of God. And so it is important for us to consider this genealogy and what it has to teach us. And I believe that by the end of our consideration, uh, I can convince you that there are some very good reasons why God includes genealogies in the Bible, including this particular genealogy at this place in the Gospel of Luke. Let me begin with one opening consideration. I, I don't know, in the midst of all of the difficulties this morning and getting the storage room open and preparing for the Lord's Supper and all the rest, I don't imagine this has been on very many people's minds, but um, you realize that today marks only 101 days left to Christmas? That even cross your mind? 
ever stop to think you only have about 100 days left? And just a few days ago, my wife was saying, you know, here it is getting on to the middle of September. I haven't even begun my Christmas present. That is to say, her preparation of them. She makes homemade ones for a large number of our family and friends. And so she was thinking about preparation for Christmas. And um, sometimes that's a little irritating to us when we see um, people in our society preparing for Christmas in advance. You know, right about, uh, it used to be Thanksgiving time. You would start hearing people, so many days to Christmas, we're opening up late now, come in and do your Christmas shopping. And I noticed this a few years ago, I don't know if others as well, it seems like about five years ago, that started to creep up a little bit more, closer to the middle of November. And then lo and behold, right around Halloween time, we have to start thinking about preparing for Christmas and decorating a house and, and getting our um, mails ready and all the rest. And that is a little irritating because we know of the commercialistic and the greedy motives of many people who want to remind us Christmas is coming. They're very glad to see it come. But of course, we should be glad to see it come for other reasons. Preparing for Christmas. I mean, that's a biblical idea, preparing for Christmas. Uh, the idea of being greedy and getting all you can from people who are jamming into your stores may not be a biblical idea. I dare say it's probably contrary to the biblical idea. But nevertheless, preparing for Christmas is a biblical notion. And you know who did the longest preparation for Christmas? God himself. God has been at work for a long, long time. You know, we mustn't ever think of that night that rolled around so many years ago and has so much nostalgic um, overtones to it, and we can be so sentimental about it, and rightly so. But that night that rolled around where the shepherds were tending their fields, the flocks out in the fields by night, and the angels come and sing that there is a Messiah that's been born. They should go visit this babe. And lo and behold, there is this baby in the manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. That night didn't happen just out of the blue. That didn't just come about all of, you know, just by accident. God was in preparation for that night for many years. And not simply a few days, 101 days, or a few months, or even a year and before. He wasn't even preparing for that. Even 10 years before that, his preparation didn't extend just one lifetime, but many lifetimes. That night was the culmination of God's preparation for Christmas from the day that Adam walked the face of the earth. Because Adam begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, and the Bible does not let up on that. And you probably got a little bit tired in the scripture reading. The son of, and the son of, and the son of. And you're saying, when are we going to be told something? But don't you see, you are being told something right there. God is saying, I have been preparing for the birth of this very special person for years now. I care about this. It's been a long time in coming, and I have been working patiently, slowly, but surely for the goal of bringing my son Jesus Christ into the world. God has been preparing for Christmas. Now that ought to be valuable enough for our spiritual sustenance this morning. But if you're thinking about the Gospel of Luke and our preaching through the Gospel of Luke, you might say, there's got to be something more to it than that, though, preacher. Because if you were preaching through Matthew's Gospel, what you just said may very well be the point of the author, because Matthew begins the genealogy where? 
chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew starts right there. And this is the genealogy of Jesus. He stems from David, he stems from Abraham, and then Matthew gives three sets of 14 generations and summarizes, and therefore Jesus came from David and Jesus came from Abraham. Matthew begins with the origin of Jesus and his Davidic and Abrahamic descent. But Luke doesn't do that. We've already had our Christmas sermons, haven't we? Weeks ago, I was preaching on the incarnation and the virgin birth, on the coming of Jesus into the world. We have been looking at the ministry of John the Baptist, and just recently, the baptism of Jesus Christ. We've now begun the preaching ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and now Luke says he was begat by so-and-so and so, so he's the son of so-and-so, who is the son of so-and-so. At just this point, Luke looks at the genealogy, and we have to ask ourselves, why? Why does Luke put it just here? Let's look at verse 23. And Jesus himself, when he began to teach, was about 30 years of age, being the son, and then begins the genealogy. Luke says, and this is a very formal beginning in the Greek, it says, and he himself, Jesus, being about, all of it is unnecessary. He could have said, and Jesus was 30 years of age, or about 30 years of age, and gotten on with it. But Luke makes it very formal. And he, Jesus, being 30 years of age. What's so important about his being about 30 years of age? Well, Luke knows the Old Testament. Luke knows that when David began to reign, according to 2 Samuel 5, he was 30 years of age. And when Joseph was made ruler of Egypt, he was 30 years of age. And when the priests were inducted into temple service, they had to be 30 years of age. And when Ezekiel, the paradigm of an Old Testament prophet, began to receive visions of the Lord, he was 30 years of age. And the Old Testament at every point stresses these things. The king and the priest and the prophets are all 30 years of age or thereabouts when they begin their service. And Jesus, and Luke knows, that those to whom he's writing understand that Jesus is the great prophet, priest, and king of God. Luke says, and at just the right time, Jesus began to minister. When he was 30 years of age, he showed up. And it isn't just that he began to preach at the right time, but he also, the one who began to preach at the right time, was just the right person. Just exactly the person that we'd want to begin this kind of ministry. Who is this person that's going to begin preaching according to Luke? Look at verse 22 preceding, which was part of last week's text and sermon. And the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form as a dove upon him, and a voice came out of heaven. Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. When Jesus was baptized, there was the declaration from heaven itself that he was the Son of God. God said, you are my beloved son. You are the one that all Old Testament prophecy was looking forward to. You are the one spoken of in the Psalms to whom I will give rulership over the nations. You are the Messiah. This is my beloved son. And this one, I am well pleased. All the other sons of men may be sinful. All the other sins of men may die for their sins. But in you, I am well pleased. And so Luke has given us one of the most dramatic indications in all of Scripture that Jesus is the divine Son of God. But having said that, 
Having said that Jesus is the divine Son of God, Luke turns the coin over and he says, and lo and behold, he's also the Son of Man. Because this one who came about the age of 30 is the Messiah, the beloved Son of God. This one who came to begin his ministry was the Son of, who was the Son of, who was the Son of, until we finally get back to Adam, who was the Son of God. Now, a couple of technical notes might be given here for the sake of your biblical instruction. If you um, will read the genealogy in Matthew's Gospel, nobody is chuckling. Have you ever read the genealogies, or do you do what we're so tempted to do? We come to them and say, wow, there's nothing in this for me, and so we jump right over them and continue with the good stuff, right? This is kind of peripheral material. Uh, If God would have known how to footnote, he would have put it at the bottom of the page and we could have skipped it all together. I hope that isn't your attitude. If you've read the genealogy of Matthew and you read the genealogy of Luke, they don't match. Why not? Why is it that there are differences between the two genealogies? Well, there are a lot of explanations for it, and I will warn you in advance the one I'm advancing this morning is only one possibility, and even it has some rough spots. At this point, there is no um, absolutely convincing uh, resolution of that contrast that uh, all evangelical scholars accept. But nevertheless, there is something to be said for the difference that is edifying, I believe. In the first place, Matthew and Luke proceed in opposite directions in their genealogy. Where does Matthew begin? Matthew begins in the Old Testament and works forward to Jesus. Luke begins with Jesus and works backward to the Old Testament. Moreover, Matthew begins with Abraham, works forward to David, to the exile, and then to Jesus. Luke works back from Jesus, not simply back to Abraham where Matthew began, but all the way back to Adam. Moreover, in the corresponding sections, that is where Matthew and Luke overlap, although they're moving different directions in the order of mention, in the corresponding sections, Luke has 57 names, Matthew only 41 names. And it isn't simply that, as you might suspect, Luke is giving more detail. That is, Matthew, obviously, because he's doing it in 14 generations, splices, is going to be skipping certain individuals and going from, say, grandson to grandfather. And Luke happens to give the fathers in between. It doesn't work that nicely because the names don't even match up. In fact, if you'll notice, Matthew gives the name of Joseph's father as Mathan. Luke gives the name of Joseph's father as Eli. And so you can see there is some need for reconciliation of the two accounts. But I don't believe there is a a great deal of difficulty here. And because time will fail us if I go into the detail that I enjoy going into on historical matters, I will skip over all the alternatives and simply go to what I think is the most likely explanation. And that's simply that Matthew, according to good Jewish custom, gives the genealogy of Joseph's family. For Joseph would have been the legal guardian of Jesus. And any Jew, and Matthew wrote his gospel for Jews, that's evident from beginning to end. Everything is directed toward the Jews. Matthew shows that Jesus, through Joseph, is truly the son of David and Abraham. Matthew makes that clear in verse 1 and clear in verse 14 of his genealogy. That that's what he wants to show. Luke, on the other hand, is giving Mary's descent. Why is he doing that? Because Luke, not worrying about these Jewish 
concerns about a, uh, David and Abraham wants to give the genuine physical descent of the Messiah, especially because he wants to trace Jesus back not to Abraham, but to Adam. And we'll talk about that at the end of our sermon, why he wants to do that. Now, it seems likely then that when Luke says Jesus, when he began to teach, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, he's talking about Joseph as the understood, customarily understood, legal father of Jesus. But Luke does give us a hint that he's not going to be talking about Joseph's physical descent. Because he says, as it was supposed that he was the son of Joseph. We know better. Luke has already told us he was born of a virgin. He had no human father. Consequently, if any physical human descent is to be traced, it will have to be traced through his mother. And so it is assumed by some scholars that Luke begins with Joseph with the proviso, as many people thought, but nevertheless, I will continue now because Joseph is the son-in-law of Heli, and then he continues with Mary's descent. There are other ways of working out the uh, contrast, but that is the one I think is the most likely. Uh, Joseph is substituted for Mary here because women don't appear traditionally in the ancestral list that the Jews would have been uh, accustomed to, and certainly the Gentiles would not have thought of women as being important enough to mention. So Joseph's mentioned, but then he proceeds with Mary's genealogy. Now, what is the theological reason that Luke puts this genealogy in here? Why did he bother to give us all these names? Why did he keep driving home the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of? You know, you almost get to the point where you say, I'm tired of hearing about who's, who's son. I don't want to know anymore. Luke wants you to know. And he wants this genealogy, this chain, to be evident in our theological reasoning. Before I give you an answer to that question, I, I want to refer to Matthew's genealogy because I think I can there, by way of analogy, demonstrate that there are very evident theological concerns in genealogies when the Jews wrote them. When Matthew wrote his genealogy, as I've said, both the beginning and the ending verses of the genealogy stress David and Abraham. So what's Matthew doing? He's saying Jesus is the true Davidic king, and Jesus is the heir of all the promises to Abraham. And that would be an important point for the Jews. And so we can see that Matthew has a theological agenda, if you will, involved in this historical genealogy. Moreover, contrary to custom, indeed the very custom I just mentioned, Matthew does something that's unheard of among the Jews. He mentions four women in the genealogy. This is not intended as a slight to the women among us this morning. But back in those days, if you were a woman, you know, you were simply the ground that uh, received the man's seed. And the idea of descent was completely a matter of male dominance. And consequently, women wouldn't be mentioned in the genealogy. Legal guardianship had to do with the man, with the father. But Matthew breaks custom and he mentions four women, but he does more than that. The insulting thing to the Jews is that he mentions four women in particular as the mothers of the people that he's talking about. And who are the four? Think about it. Now it's a little spot quiz of your biblical knowledge. He mentions, first of all, Tamar. You remember the story of Tamar in the Old Testament? She was an adulteress. Now, you're going to mention the pure descent of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Messiah, why would you mention women, Matthew, and of all things, an adulteress? Well, 
The next one he mentions is Rahab, who was a harlot. By this time, the Jews are really going to be insulted. And Matthew goes on and he makes mention of Ruth, although she's not an adulteress and not a harlot. Nevertheless, her midnight visit to Boaz might certainly have raised some eyebrows among the Jews. And finally, he mentions Bathsheba, the woman seduced by David, through whom Solomon came into the world. Four women. Women? and four women of questionable moral standing. I think Matthew does that for an obvious reason. As he's dealing with the Jews, what was, one, what was one of the customary slanders that the Jews directed against Jesus? Well, who's your father? They knew very well. The word had gotten out. There was something strange about the birth of Jesus. And they thought it was great fun to ridicule Jesus. Well, you may think that Mary is your mother in a virgin sense, but uh, we all know that's a way of covering up for what? That she was a loose woman. Now, none of that is true, but you can see Matthew turning the tables on the Jews, and he says, you're so upset about the unusual circumstances of my Lord's birth? Let me remind you who's in your genealogy now. And so he points out only women of questionable moral status. You can't look at that and think it's just accidental. Finally, Matthew uses his genealogy. We know he's deleting some names because he purposely says 14 generations from, da from Abraham to David, 14 generations to the exile, 14 generations to Jesus. He clearly wants to show that there, if you will, are major stop points in the genealogy. And they are, as we've already said, Abraham and David. Well, Matthew is not our text this morning. I only use him to, to demonstrate, I think, rather clearly that the biblical writers have a theological intent when they give us a genealogy. Let's ask now, what is the theological significance of Luke's genealogy? Here are some false leads. Luke gives 77 names. Ah, 77 names. Seven is the biblical number of perfection. That means there are 11 generations or 11 sets of seven, right? And lo and behold, in one apocryphal, in one apocryphal text, we will find mention of all of world history being divided up into 11 weeks. And a week has what? Seven days. And so what Luke is doing here is giving us a midrashic, symbolic presentation that all of human history has led up to this point. 11 weeks of seven. Okay, so 11 sets of seven names. And then the 12th is going to be the Messianic era. Well, that's really clever, but the fact of the matter is that Luke works backwards instead of forwards, and so that kind of ruins the idea that he's presenting human history developing up to the point of the Messiah. Others have said, um, which is true in Jeremiah 36, Jehoiakim, the king of Israel, who was the last king before Israel went into exile, is told that no one of your sons will ever sit upon the throne of David. God will judge his sinful house. And so, although Matthew gives us the lineage from David through Solomon to Jehoiakim, at just that point, Luke changes. He doesn't give us Solomon to Jehoiakim because he knows that Jehoiakim is set aside by God. Possible. Others have said there are a lot of priestly names in this list. Maybe um, Luke is trying to stress that Jesus is the priestly Messiah. Others have said he traces lineage through Nathan which, as some Jews later suppose, the prophet Nathan was the son of David, 
And so Luke is presenting Jesus as the prophetic Messiah. Well, I'm not going to bore you any longer with these possibilities about king and about priest and about prophet and all that. Why does Luke give us the genealogy as he does? I want to suggest the answers in verse 38. He begins formally, Jesus, and he, Jesus, being 30 years of age, as you would expect of any godly man who was a prophet, priest, or king to begin his ministry, was the son of Joseph, as we suppose. But now we give Mary's uh, line of descent all the way down to verse 38, and Luke comes to his climax. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke carries the genealogy back to God. Why does he do that? Well, because Luke wants to point out that Jesus has a genuine place in the human race, that race that was created by God. Jesus is the human Son of God. Luke has just finished saying what? What did verse 22 say above? The voice from heaven says, You are my Son in whom I am well pleased. Luke has pointed out he is the divine Son of God. And Luke says, and let me tell you, this Jesus, the one who began to minister at that baptism, this Jesus was also the human son of God, because he came down through all these years through the ancestry of the human race. Jesus, who is God, is nevertheless truly man. True God, true man. And I believe that's precisely what Luke's trying to get at. He's giving us the counterpart to the divine declaration of the sonship of Jesus, that Jesus is also Son of God through Adam, a human being as well. And so Luke is stressing the incarnation. Luke is stressing this is the divine Son of God in the form of a human Son of God. That is a God-man. Moreover, Luke specifically carries the genealogy back to Adam as Son of God, who was the Son of Adam, the Son of God. The contrast is being drawn between the first Adam, the disobedient son of God, and the second Adam, the obedient son of God. God says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But Jesus descends down through the human race from another Adam, another son of God, in whom God was not well pleased. Jesus comes to rectify, if you will, the mistake of Adam, to redeem the fallen human race. Moreover, Matthew traced the genealogy to Abraham. Jesus is truly Jew of Jews. Luke, who is a Gentile, and writing for Gentiles, and throughout his gospel stressing that the gospel comes to the Gentiles, Luke traces the genealogy not back to Abraham, but back to Adam, the father of the whole human race. And there's one final consideration that I'd like to bring before you this morning, and with this we'll close. This genealogy is very important because it is really the climax and the fulfillment of what was the very beginning of Scripture for the Jews and all the human race, as a matter of fact, many years ago. If I were to ask you, what was the first Scripture to be written, what would your answer be? Well, some of you might say the Pentateuch. We all know the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. They were the first ones to be written. Well, I didn't ask what was the first scripture in the Bible, that is the first canonical scripture. I asked what was the first scripture, what is the first writing, what is the first inspired writing that God left as important to his people. Now, if you're really on your toes, you would have said, no, no, it wasn't the five books of Moses, which were written later, but first the Ten Commandments, which God himself wrote on tables of stone 
and delivered to Moses, the prototype of the Bible, truly given by God. And that would have been a very good answer. Ah, but there is one that's even better. The first writing, the first book of importance to the Jews is recorded for us in Genesis, the fifth chapter. In Genesis chapter 5, what is Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4 about? Creation, fall, and the destruction of the human race. The destruction in the sense of all of Adam's children have gone bad. And so finally, Seth is born. Through Seth, the human race is going to receive the Messiah. And right after we learn then these initial beginning theological truths, the Bible says in Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And chapter 5 of Genesis then is a long genealogy of Adam's initial um, table of descent. This is the book of the generation. The book. See, back in those days, the genealogy was written down and people, they held on to it. And they thought it was important. And they protected it, and they <laughs> clutched it, and they said, this is the book of the generations. Why would generations, why would boring genealogies, tables of descent, be important to these people? Because the first promise of the gospel that God gave was that through the seed of the woman, a Savior would come. And that's what the early human race had to hold on to. Someone is going to be born who is going to make a difference. Someone is going to rectify our fallen condition. Someone is going to redeem us to God. And God said to the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush his head. The seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. That, you see, is the overarching gospel promise through all the Old Testament. The seed of the woman. And so the book of the generations is important, and genealogies are important. And Luke finally says, and the seed of the woman has come. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this genealogy that reminds us of how you have been in preparation for Christmas for so many years. That you cared for us and did not forget about the human race, but you fulfilled that most elementary promise that basic and original foundational gospel declaration that through the seed of the woman, you would bring one who would defeat Satan. Lord, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who as the great prophet, priest, and king, not only appeared at just the right time in his life to save us, but indeed had just the right credentials, being the divine Son of God in a human body. How we thank you that he is indeed Son of Adam and Son of God. Lord, we pray that through your Son, the God-man, you might make us sons of God by faith, that you might forgive our sins and welcome us back into your family. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full Greg Bonson Christmas Collection, now available on Canon+. Plus.